the term vulnerable customers is sort of fallen into common usage um, largely because that's what the regulator um, calls them. But for me, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Um, I think when you think about this, it's helpful to think there's a person first. So I'm a, I'm a customer first before I have either temporarily or on a longer term, a vulnerable characteristic. But, you know, most people don't want to be defined by a vulnerability that they may have. So we should think about them as customers first and then cater for their needs. From our own data, actually, we have 47% of our customers are showing at least one characteristic of vulnerability. We're not talking about one one small team of people that manage and look after vulnerability. Actually, you're you're talking about ingraining ingraining the culture and the concepts and the the, the processes into absolutely everything that we do. Everywhere that there's customer, then we should be talking about vulnerability as well. Hello and welcome to our new episode of Risk and Regulation Unraveled, our Grant Thornton's Financial Services podcast. I'm Irina Velkova, your regular host, and I bring to you conversations about the dynamic world of risk and regulation. We help our financial services clients understand new regulatory developments, upcoming changes, and how to stay ahead of the regulatory curve by inviting renowned experts to share their insights. Before we begin, I have some exciting news. Our podcast is now available on all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And if you don't want to miss an episode, no matter where you are, please go and subscribe. I'm rushing to dive into the subject of today's conversation, though, as it is one that is close to my heart. And I think we have plenty to discuss with my exceptional guests. So let's get into it. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Maxine Pritchard who is the Head of Financial Inclusion and Vulnerability at HSBC UK. With 16 years experience in the financial industry, Maxine has found her passion within customer experience and has been leading on HSBC UK's financial inclusion and vulnerability strategy for the last five years. Her drive is to ensure that no one is left behind, irrespective of their circumstances and that everyone has fair access to banking. When life brings difficult times, she wants to ensure the bank is able to provide the right support when it's most needed. Absolute pleasure, Maxine. You are an inspiration and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We are also joined by Peter Lovegrove. Peter is the director at Grant Thornton's regulatory practice and has been with the firm for nearly six years. He is a qualified financial advisor and senior compliance professional with over 20 years experience in the financial services industry including six years as an FCA supervisor. Peter specializes in understanding and applying the FCA's approach to conduct regulation, the subject of today's topic too. Great to have you, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Irina. Hi, Maxine. Hi, Peter. As I'm sure you grasped from the intros, my guests come with a plethora of experience and incredible insights to share. But today we're going to talk about a subject that has been for long on the regulatory agenda and has reached even higher level of prominence in recent months. And that is the subject of vulnerable customers. COVID-19 has put vulnerabilities even more in the spot. And earlier this year, the FCA issued its updated guidance as to what firms should change. The main purpose of the guidance is to drive improvements in the way firms treat vulnerable consumers and bring about a practical shift in firms' actions and behaviours. The underlining premise is that the FCA wants vulnerable consumers to experience outcomes as good as any other customer and to get consistently fair treatment. The FCA has already sent strong signals that vulnerable customers are really high on its agenda and falling short of regulators' expectations will not be tolerated. So to shed more light on how the FCA defines vulnerable customers and how our firms expected to implement this guidance, or in some instances what they're already doing, I have invited Maxine and Peter to chat about it, as I know they are real experts on the subject, and I'm sure it will be a fascinating discussion. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the topic, though, I would like to understand a little bit more about guests. I know, for example, that Maxine has a tendency to go to the wrong places when it's really important to be at the right place. <laughs> and I know that from away from work, Peter enjoys singing, and he's on numerous recordings and the soundtracks to several Hollywood films including Titanic. This all sounds absolutely incredible and I'm looking forward to exploring all these stories throughout the podcast too today. 
But perhaps let's start with something more of a newer. So, so I'd like to know from Maxim, uh, starting with you probably, why did you take up on this role at HSBC? Isn't that one that comes with a bit more emotional charge than a typical corporate job? How do you think about it? How do you deal with it on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I've, I've always had a real passion um, for, for people and, and more specifically wanting to make sure that people have have a fair shot, have a fair shot at whatever it is that they're doing um, and, and that they don't face un, unnecessary barriers. Um, so having a background in, in projects, um, I've always loved being able to make make a difference and be able to see what what that difference is that I've made um, almost almost immediately. So tying the two the two things the two things that I love doing um, together has has given me the the perfect role. Personally, um, experiencing some some rather difficult um, personal situations um, through through family illness, family um, bereavement, um, really seeing how finances can can impact what what goes on um in in the family home at the most difficult of times um when when to be truthful finances are the last thing you want to be thinking of so really um it, it's given me a good understanding of of how we can help prevent make things harder for people at already a very difficult time so you found your calling i, I think so yeah yeah, I think so. <laughs> that, that sounds great. Um, thank you, Maxine. And, and Peter, I guess just turning into you, where does your interest into the subject stem from? Yeah, I think a lot of what Maxine said there sort of resonates with me. This is, this is a human thing, isn't it? Um, I think my interest in customers with, with vulnerabilities has sort of always been there. Um, and the FCA activity in this area sort of largely codifies what I've felt all the way along that firms should, should be doing. I think because because we work in financial services and we we perhaps tend to forget the enormous capacity that the industry has to affect the quality of people's actual lives on a day-to-day basis, you know, whether for good or indeed for ill. Um, I think that you know firms want to make money, which is fine, um, but we also want the industry to be trusted and valued. Um, and for all sorts of reasons, going back quite a long way, uh, that trust isn't always there. And that's a shame, I think, because so many firms are doing so many great things for customers right the way across our industry, um, and that's not always visible. Uh, I think that you know, being good at identifying and catering for customers who are in a tight spot um, is both desirable in and of itself, um, but it's also a really great opportunity um, for the industry to present the best of itself. And I think that's why why I'm, why I'm passionate about it. Um, one other thing I'd say as well, Irina, um, you know, the term vulnerable customers sort of fall into common usage um, largely because that's what the regulator um, calls them but for me it's a bit more nuanced than that um, I think when you think about this it's helpful to think there's a person first so I'm a, mm. I'm a customer first before I have uh, either temporarily or on a longer term a vulnerable characteristic but, you know most people don't want to be defined by a vulnerability that they may have so we should think about them as customers first and then cater for their needs indeed uh, and and most importantly, as you said, although we all work in financial services industry, we sometimes tend to forget that we are humans before all. Yep. And this is where it all starts. And the industry is not going to be there if it wasn't for the humans. I guess let's let's just try and get into the more detailed, drier, if you like, elements of this absolutely fascinating <laughs> subject <laughs> and the regulatory angle. Um, and, and Peter, perhaps just to set the scene, maybe one for you. The FCA published a few months back an updated guidance as to what they would like, obviously, firms to change. Um, what, what do you think are the big ticket things that firms really need, take, need to take into consideration when actually think of implementing this guidance? OK, OK, so I, I get the dry one first. That's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. Yeah. Give it to the risk first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, as you say, uh, the FCA published its final guidance for firms on the fair treatment of vulnerable customers in February uh, 2021, uh, that followed a consultation. Uh, to quote from the FCA's own website, we want to drive improvements in the way firms treat vulnerable customers and bring about a practical shift in firms' actions and behaviour. Uh, you know, we, we get asked by firms, can you translate that for us? And what, is, what does that really mean? And you just ruined my intro because I started the intro of the podcast with that same quote from the website as well. And you just revealed that I've copied and pasted it from there. <laughs> No secrets for me, Irina. Uh, yeah, 
what does, that, what, what, what does it really mean? Um, I think the SGA is saying that um, addressing the needs of customers with some vulnerable characteristics it goes to the very heart of what it means to be an SCA regulated firm. Um, I think it's one manifestation of some fundamental SCA expectations um, that go right back to how firms seek to make their money in a sustainable way, you know, from a customer outcomes perspective. So I think that firms, what the SCA is asking firms to do is to continuously challenge themselves. What is it about our products, not anybody else's, what is it about our products and how they're distributed and serviced that could lead to poor outcomes for customers, whether they're vulnerable or not? So firms need to think about their business model, their target market, their products, their customers' needs, and to have identified what is more likely to constitute a vulnerable customer for them. Um, I think the SCA is, is getting frustrated um, with firms treating the issue of vulnerability as something that's sort of separate or bespoke, uh, that, that sort of needs to be dealt with as a specific problem or bolted onto uh, its other activities. Um, yes, you need policies and procedures and all those good things, but that's not nearly enough on its own anymore. I think what the SA is asking firms is to build tailored, supportive interactions for customers appropriate for their products and services, um, rather than treating vulnerability as a, a compromise or a distraction um, from their main sort of you know commercial uh, activities. And whilst vulnerability is often difficult to predict or identify, um, it's vital that a firm goes as far as it can in understanding what vulnerability looks like for, for its customers, so they can handle interactions with customers better um, and in a more supportive way. So we think that um, ultimately the best way to approach this is to try and avoid a transactional approach and strive to treat every customer uh, in a way that meets their needs, whether they're vulnerable or not. And in that way, good customer outcomes can ensue um, and a sort of a distinction, if you like, between more and less vulnerable customers begins to fall away. Also, I think yeah, the SCA is trying to engineer a significant industry-wide cultural shift here, um, and it's not messing around. Uh, I mean, you said earlier that um, failure will not be tolerated or, or words to that effect. You know, and the, the guidance does suggest that the SCA is going to monitor firms' activity over the next couple of years and then look to take action um, with firms that are continuing to, to fall short. Um, and that's sort of um, a signal that it's, the SCA is willing to, you know, wheel out its heavier weaponry in this area, which it hasn't necessarily done up to this point, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's how I rate as well. And that's how I understand um, where they're trying to get to with our guidance. Um, and I guess what you just said probably lends well into the next question around what does the FCA consider to actually be the vulnerable characteristics of customers? Okay, yeah. So um, let, let's try and take each of these so-called drivers of vulnerability um, identified by the FCA. Uh, and a few characteristics that firms need to consider. Um, so the first driver of vulnerability is health, you know, conditions or illnesses that affect someone's ability to carry out day-to-day -day tasks. Um, so is that permanent or temporary? Um, is that health condition physical or mental or both? Is it, uh, is it a one-off? Is it periodic? Is it recurring? Um, and we know, of course, that sadly that the pandemic has exacerbated um, an already significant problem with, with the nation's mental health. So the first thing is health. Second driver is uh, what the SA calls life events. So major events that we're all uh, going to experience in our, in our lives, bereavement, um, loss of employment, relationship breakdown. Um, and again, you know, research before the pandemic suggests that that can up affect up to 20% or so of the UK adult population at any one particular time. Um, arguably that's likely to be higher just at the moment. Um, so firms need to be thinking about, you know, have someone's personal circumstances changed? Uh, their address, their marital status, their employment status? Um, do they have unusual debt patterns? Have they recently made insurance or protection claims, for example? Are they caring for someone else? Are they a carer? Um, do they have dependents? The third one is about people's resilience. Um, so this is basically people's, you know, a, a relatively low ability to withstand shocks, be they financial, emotional, or something else, or a combination of things. Um, that might affect up to a third of UK adults at any particular time. Um, so, as a firm, are your customers in principle um, in an inherently more vulnerable position by virtue of their health, their age, their employment, their income, or other personal circumstances, again, including whether people are dependent upon them? Are your customers having to live in the now, paycheck to paycheck? Um, 
we think that over a third of the UK population has less than £500 in uh, readily accessible savings. Um, and for some people, debt might be becoming unmanageable. Um, it's not easy to have a clear sight of how many customers that affects um, in, in significant debt difficulty, but it's very likely to be in the millions, uh, possibly higher than 5 million people. And then the fourth area which the SCA identifies as the driver of vulnerability is capability. So people with relatively low knowledge of financial matters, um, a lack of confidence in managing their own money, maybe low literacy or digital skills. Um, possibly people are at risk of um, financial abuse in some way. Possibly the customer um, doesn't uh, make their own decisions when it comes to their finances. Um, and this kind of lack of capability may affect uh, up to around a fifth of UK adults. So firms have got to consider that. How can we approach people respectfully? How can we provide support and services um, which caters for, for, for the needs of those people? So those are the four drivers. Yeah, thank you, Peter. And I think uh, whilst the, the, the first couple are probably a little bit more objective, I think the third and the fourth driver you mentioned could be quite subjective and, and perhaps quite a challenge for firms to actually implement uh, and, and think about it. And, and, and then I would like to ask Maxime, how does HSBC look into those drivers? Uh, what do you have in place? Are, are the HSBCs, for example, policies aligned to these four drivers? Or you have some broader criteria? Yeah, I think I think it's it's really helpful if um, if as an industry um, we are all talking the same language that we all have that same understanding. Um, so absolutely, at, at HSBC UK, we we do have those same same drivers, and we do um, work to the same the same definitions. If you want to to use that word, um, the same the same drivers. Um, and the same um, the same understanding around um, people moving into temp into into vulnerable circumstances, um, or they might be permanently in a in vulnerable circumstance, and and that is that's sort of ever changing. Um, and we we know that from our own from our own data, actually, we have forty seven percent of our customers are showing at least one characteristic of vulnerability and of course I think you know P Peter's just described the different the different boxes but most people don't fit squarely into one box there's often multiple things going on um, for all of us at any one time and and some for some um, the impact will just be be greater than for for others um, so really recognizing that it's not about putting somebody in a box recognizing as you the word you used um, Irina is humanity recognizing that we're just talking about people's lives we're just talking about everyday situations um, and, and and sadly sadly very real situations for, for lots of people. It helps that we that we all talk the same language, that um, as an industry we share we share that, that sort of best practice and we and we work together to um, to make improvements to to our industry. Yeah, and absolutely makes sense. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, did you have to, as a, as a bank, as an organisation, did you have to to make lots of changes following on to the FCA latest guidance or final guidance, as Peter correctly described it, um, in terms of what kind of policies and procedures HSBC UK already has in place, or uh, it was just like build up on what, what we were doing before? Yeah, so we so we, we've. We've been on a journey. Love that, love that <laughs> phrase um, for for a few for a few years now, um, and 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 sort of been been working along alongside the FCA and and making sure that we're understanding the the challenges that they're that they're calling out and their 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 expectations. Um, so we have had a, a framework in place for for some years now, um, and actually when the the final guidance came through. It was really a ratification of of what we're what we're working on. We do have that same um, same sort of philosophy that we're not talking about one one small team of people that manage and look after vulnerability. Actually, you're you're talking about ingraining ingraining the culture and the concepts and the the, the processes into absolutely everything that we do everywhere that there's customer then we should be talking about vulnerability as well. So we we have some we have very similar um, pillars um, to, to how the FCA describes. So we 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 created a, a huge training program for for our, our colleagues. 
and and very importantly that didn't just focus or hasn't just focused on our frontline colleagues who are supporting customers on a on a daily basis they can only they can only offer what they're given to offer by the people that design the products um, and the people that, that manage those processes. So it's really important for us that everybody in the organisation had that same understanding of vulnerability, so that actually we can we can present good good products to our frontline to then support the customer most effectively. Um, we we went through a process of um, creating a specialist support team, so where where people perhaps need a, a little bit more support or slightly tailored support, there is um, special support available to them, um, depending on, on what, what their what their needs are. And sometimes it's it's a case of actually helping someone to understand what their needs might be and and how we can help as a bank. And is that a frontline support team, Maxine? Yes. That yeah. They actually communicate with customer customers facing. Directly. Yeah. Directly with the customer, so they 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 provide daily support to to customers. For some for some that might be ongoing support, um, and we we have um, reasonably regular contact with with those people. For others, it might just be a, a one off um, with that the, where they need some support at a, a particular point in time. And do customers uh, tend to know about this special support as well? I mean, do they tend to call a lot, or has this been a, a journey as well in a way in terms of communicating it out there? Yeah, and we we make that assessment when they when they contact us, um, and we 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 take the the decision as to as to which route we'll we'll um we'll filter them through to. But actually, interestingly, that that leads me on to the, the next the next sort of area is um being able to record that that need um, and I and I very specifically use need there rather than the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, we we don't feel that it's um that we can be as helpful as we need to be for for a, a customer if we focus on what their vulnerability is um you know we don't know what their what what the challenge might be for that particular person in their particular circumstances so what we focus on is um what can we what can we do to help so we record what their need is so how we might adapt our service to help that individual and make sure um, the idea is that, that they only have to tell us about that circumstance once and that information is shared accordingly uh, across systems in the bank. Um, the, ne the next area is all around sort of product design um, and I, I think Pete, Pete has already already touched on it but really kind of um, and, and here what I like to think about is if you design for vulnerability then you get it right for everyone. You don't have to have special bolt-on processes. Um, so this, you know, this is really kind of looking quite deeply into the products that we already have available. Um, any new services, any change in product that that might that might happen, really kind of making people question at every point: How would this work if? How would this work if? And and just constantly challenge, challenging yourself to make sure that it your service can work for everyone all of the time. And then wrapping around all of that, um, Peter will be very pleased to hear that there is governance, uh, governance and oversight um, to make sure that we that we really, again, building that into the rhythm and routine of our governance and making sure that through every governance layer in every part of the bank, <clears throat> that we do have um, that we do have good checks and balances in place to make sure that that vulnerable customers are are, are getting good outcomes. Yeah, that, that's great, Maxime. And and I guess obviously HSBC UK is certainly an industry leader in many aspects. And I knew certainly from the work you're doing on on vulnerability on vulnerable customers as well. I think what could be really helpful for our listeners, for example, is if you just share some of the practical steps you took actually to try and. And, and make sure that vulnerable um, customers' needs are met. And you just said now how how do you how you identify them and, and all the um, the processes you have in place to do so together with the product design. But other than that, did the guidance um, result, if you like, in, in anything more specific in terms of practical steps? Yeah, and I think I think here where when you're when you're looking at products, there's sort of two two angles to to, to take that from is um, looking at, as I say, at, at kind of making sure that our products can work for everyone all of the time. 
Um, and an, a, a brilliant example. I'm, I'm so, so proud of, um, of what we've done as a, as a bank um, is launching our new debit and credit cards. Um, they, they, they not only look brilliant, um, but they also now have accessibility features built in as standard. You do not have to phone up and tell us or message us or contact us through the branch and tell us that you need something different that card will just work for more people um, for, for yeah, and, and their change in circumstances. So things like having a, a notch that, that will help um, identify which way to put the card, an arrow also helps um, identify which way to put the card, some tactile features that help you to know um, whether you're, you're holding your debit card or your credit card. All of the features, all of the um, all of the information is flat printed, so there's no none of that embossing that rubs away after after period of time. It's all flat printed in larger font on the back of the card, so it's not busying up the front of the card. It's all on the back of the card um, in much larger font. Some very very simple 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 changes, um, but the impact of that um, as someone might gradually lose their sight, um, particularly in, in older age. Um, there doesn't need to be a special process. So, so that's a really good example of standardising accessibility, standardising um, how things can work for more people all of the time versus where you might need to um, think about where you've got gaps in your processes or gaps in your in your services. Um, so an example here I'd use is um, recognising that um, whilst we have a basic bank account that is um, available for, for people to, to access, um, it, it was, it's not always been easy for people with, um, without the right documentation to open an account. So we partnered up with, um, initially through, um, through the Salvation Army, um, as part of um, what we call the Survivor Bank Programme, um, and and that really that that made us able to offer accounts to um, survivors of modern slavery and human trafficking, um, and then we expanded that service, working with Shelter to then look at other excluded groups um, such as those without a, a fixed address, um, and and. The, the multitude of reasons why you might not have um, have a fixed address or have that documentation um, and, and, make, and make sure that people can access financial services because fundamentally you need a bank account um, for, for today's society um, and the, the, the more we can get people with access somewhere safe to keep their money it, it takes away the the other risks that they're exposed to um, in in life. Yeah, and that, that sounds like, as you said, some very simple steps being taken, but actually making such a huge difference. And and almost going back to the drawing to the drawing board, and as you said, just asking some really fundamental questions as to how how we actually make sure that our products um, and our services indeed can can serve all of our customers. And and I think that's pretty much aligned to to what you said earlier, Peter, in terms of this more holistic approach. Is that do you think that's what the FCA's intention is behind all of their thinking as well, in terms of we just want to make sure that you ask these questions up front, US firms, I mean. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Maxine used the word ingrained, I think, earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, HSBC is working to make sure that um, this, these ideas are ingrained uh, in, in every layer of the business, whether you're customer facing or not. And that, I think, is what the FCA is after, looking for firms to strip their business model right back and as you say, we know, ask those fundamental questions. Well, you know, what are these products for? Um, and I, I also, I really liked the way Maxine articulated this idea that um, if we design for vulnerability, chances are we'll design a great product for everybody. Yeah, um, I think absolutely. that's a, that's an idea that can really resonate, and I, I think firms should adopt that. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, we're getting too much into the deep, uh, the, the deep kind of um, foundations of this topic. So I'll use the moment and ask some more light-hearted questions. Um, Maybe a good time to ask you, Maxime, what kind of steps did you take from a practical perspective to ensure that you don't end up in the wrong places anymore? And I must admit. <laughs> I tend to get lost constantly, and particularly in this country, I, for, for one, 
always get on the wrong train, for example, or there is something wrong with the train, so I end up in the wrong direction. So I tend not to use trains in this country, which is quite difficult because then I'm always <laughs> going to end up. But you told me something about planes and Hindi, which sounds even more serious. So what's the story? <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm, um, I, I do get the mickey taken out of me from uh, from my friends on a on a regular basis. Um, it's it's not uncommon that I I end up in the, in the wrong place. Whether um, so, we we had a holiday, and in my defence, we had gone to Croatia first, and then flew into Italy, and then we're flying back to the UK. Um, and I took us to the wrong airport um, to fly home. Um, and and unusually, actually, we had quite quite a nice amount of time. Um, it, it wasn't the usual panic of arriving at the airport and and sort of rushing through security. We had plenty of time, wasting time getting drinks. And then I was sort of looking at the board. Where's our flight? Where's our flight? And then I had this realization of what I'd done. Um, and the other airport was a good sort of 45 minutes away, although our taxi driver did do it in about 30, I think. <laughs> we like, just, just put your foot down. <laughs> um, did you make we, it? We, we did make it in time, yeah. So so that was that was a, a good stressful moment. And then the 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 hen the, the Hindu story was um back in the days where you still would print, you know, you go onto AA route route finder and I proudly turned up at this this Hindu like nobody else had bothered thinking about how we were going to get there and I was like it's okay I have all the instructions I'm the fun one obviously at the <laughs> at the Hindu um but I um reversed the numbers on the on the postcode so we ended up where we were supposed to be in this idyllic um cottage um just outside of out of, out of Bristol um, countryside. Um, we were right in the middle of a of a housing estate with a fire station next to us. So <laughs> yeah, another another good one. What measures have I put in place though? I mean, that's a good prompt that I probably should put some measures in place, isn't it? <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll have a think about what I should do. <laughs> in, in all fairness, I'm not sure I I've put any measures in place to make sure I don't end up on the wrong trains as well. So. <laughs> But I should work on that. I should work on that. <laughs> on that note, let's go back to to um to the discussion um today in more detail. I think um I'm, I'm sure Peter, you shared that view from what what we can see a lot in this guidance, particularly um there is lots of reference to culture and behaviours, and and both you and Maxime referenced that as well, particularly about the culture point. But I think what are what are other elements that firms should really think about um, when when considering vulnerable customers beyond the the pure design of products and services and policies and places the, the the more administrative parts if you like what what beyond them is is in there okay yeah you're, you're coming back to me for the dry stuff again after the fun stuff <laughs> to start with um, no message there no, uh, um, well I mean uh, you know so again, builds on what, what Maxine was describing about what, what she and her team have been doing, because she gave some really great examples of uh, applying this, these kind of ideas in, in practice, which isn't actually particularly easy. Um, again, I think, you know, um, this goes back to the heart of what being an SEA regulated firm is all about, as, as we mentioned earlier. Um, the, the, the guidance that the SEA published in February asks firms to consider vulnerable customers through four lenses, um, customer base, products and communications, staff capability uh, and monitoring, you know, all of which Maxine sort of touched on when, when describing some HSBC examples. But if we to let's briefly explore each of those in, in turn. So customer base products, um, we think that firms should consider every stage of a customer journey throughout a whole product lifecycle um, to preempt or predict, if possible, instances of, of, of vulnerability, um, even if, of course, firms can't stop customers um, being or becoming vulnerable. So yeah, firms should ask themselves, stripping it right back again, this idea, what, you know, who is this product for? For whom is it more and less likely to be appropriate? Um, and again, Maxine's idea, if we design for vulnerability, we should get it right for everyone. Um, at each stage of a customer lifecycle, how are we going to identify someone who could be vulnerable? How are we going to empower customers to make it easier for them to interact with us on their terms? Um, what could we do to cater for or even alleviate a customer's vulnerability at that point in a product lifecycle. 
Um, can we stress test products or services? Can we subject it to certain conditions uh, or you know, to see how it might perform in a range of different market environments and how vulnerable customers might be affected? Um, can we test real life experiences for customers through mystery shopping or other techniques? So I think the essay wants firms to build up a good idea of what a vulnerable customer might look like for them and their products and the ways they can then identify and, and cater for it. Um, the co communications, I mean, this, this, you know, this, this, these are not new ideas from all sorts of other parts of, of regulation, but firms should always design communications from the customer's point of view. So prominently explain what it's trying to achieve, um, personalise as much as possible, um, ensure your customers understand it's crystal clear to them what you're asking them to do um, and what the consequences of any action you're asking them to take will be. I think also it's really helpful for firms to try to match communication channels, particularly for proactive communication, um, with the channel through which customers have been interacting with the firm. Because in that way, the customer's probably given you a good idea of how they would like to interact with you. So make it easy, make it easy for them if you can. Um, also, um, tools or other flags that um, make available support available from, from human beings. Um, if you're interacting with the firm digitally in some way, you know, make available human support for customers that, that might need that. Um, and again, I think Maxine mentioned earlier, you know, firms should try to minimise, if at all possible, the number of times a customer has to inform them um, about their vulnerabilities or about or about their needs, because that might not be something that people people enjoy. Um, staff capability, third area. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, we, we see in our work, don't we, Irina, that um, a firm's staff reflect its core values, uh, by which I mean they reflect its actual core values which aren't necessarily the same as the core values the firm would like um, you to think that it that it has. You know, staff behave in accordance with how they're incentivised, um, whether that's explicitly by how they're assessed or by how they're paid, um, or implicitly by the firm's culture and its leadership. So um, we think firms should embed a good core knowledge um, in everybody, particularly perhaps customer-facing teams, but everybody, to understand, you know, for us, who might a vulnerable customer be? Um, Recruitment is critical. You know, recruit staff who share your values, the values you want. Staff who understand and believe in what you're trying to do. Um, educate staff as to what vulnerability is and how it is likely to manifest itself in your, for your customers and your services. Um, also, um, again, Maxine's touched on this, ensure staff are trained to identify uh, and support the needs of the customer. They recognise it, they know what to do um, and empower and equip staff to exercise their own judgment uh, in customer specific situations, perhaps within some parameters that, that staff know and understand. So they, they, they know what they're supposed to do and they feel empowered to help people. And finally, monitoring. So, um, you know, uh, identifying uh, how well customers' uh, vulnerability is identified is likely to be part of first, second, and even third line monitoring for any firms large enough for that to be proportionate. So we think firms can and should have robust, detailed product review infrastructure uh, and metrics which measure the extent to which um, vulnerable customers have been identified and received a good outcome, which of course involves articulating what that good outcome uh, is. I think that's probably the, the heart of it. Yeah, no, that, that's very helpful, actually. It sets out some really clear expectations as per the guidance, as you say, and and it puts a lot of onus on the firms. And I think you've been crystal clear in that on, on relaying uh, the FCA's um, expectations in that. So I guess turning to Maxine, what, what do you think your biggest challenges have been in, in practical terms in implementing all of this through, through these four lenses that Peter just talked about? I, I think probably the, the scale and size of an organization that has been well established for, for many, many years, um, lots of different systems, um, legacy systems that are used, um, employees all over all over the globe um, that, are, that are supporting customers in the in the UK. Um, so I think, you know, the, the complexities of a huge structure um, so when we're talking about needing to embed into absolutely everything that we do, that's quite a lot. <laughs> you know that that when you want to get to the point where every single customer touch point in every single channel works well for um, for all customers, 
that's quite a feat um that is quite a feat to to achieve so um you know just in in the in the uk alone um a, across our uk network we have 14 million customers using multiple different channels and using those channels at different points according to either what works for them or what you know that how well we've implemented a, a particular process into into a channel so definitely the, the the scale and and probably you know fitting into a, a global structure as well um when you've got very specific regulation from the uk or very specific um expectations from the uk is marrying that up with our with, with global policies um I think we've been extremely fortunate um, and, and, and I hope that other firms um, start to see this as well, but culture is absolutely key. It, it really is. Without, um, without having um, support from the top um, and you know, right from the top, None, none of this is possible. None of it, none of it can can really be achieved. And and I think Peter, you, you talked about there how there's the, there's a difference between what culture you think you've got versus what culture you actually have. Um, and and I, you know, as a as a great example of of when we when we've launched the the Survivor Bank and, and No Fixed Address Services, the amount of our colleagues that have reached out and used the word pride, um, and 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 said how pleased and, and honoured they are to work for an organisation that that prioritises this kind of activity, which, you know, that that that's really important to to make sure that everybody's pulling in the in the right direction. Um, so I, I suppose challenge, challenges always become opportunities, don't they? They're, they they yes, yes, it's it's difficult. Um, but I think, you know, the the fact that it makes sense. I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone would read the guidance and think, I don't. I don't understand what what the FCA is getting at. I don't understand why we need to support people. Perhaps some of the practicalities of how do we do that um, could be more of a challenge. But but you know, everybody everybody wants to be a a, a good fellow human being and and make sure that that we're we're making a a, a good system for everyone. And I think, yeah, you absolutely spot on saying the practicalities, because I think what could be really useful, for, again, for, for people who are listening to that, perhaps is exploring just a little bit more about how do you ingrain that in behaviours? How do you make sure that this actually works in practice across the firm? And you said, uh, obviously, lots of um, employees and HSBC have been really proud of that and that, that you're doing things in that regard. But how did you how did you go about making sure that it is indeed ingrained in people's minds, in your staff's, staff's minds? Do you know, I think um, actually a lot of it comes from making sure that you're doing the right thing for the right outcome for the right people. So, um, you know, accepting that we probably don't know the answers in in the bank. You know, we don't necessarily have the experience. We might have the will and the, and the desire to make changes, but we don't necessarily know what those changes need to look like and how they need to happen. So, really calling on on friends in the in the third sector and and through charity partnerships um, to get a really good understanding of what it is people need and and what gaps and barriers are we providing to then make sure that what we're building is the right answer when you do that then the customers kind of they're sort of talking for you in a way you know so the the people that have reached out and said how proud they are they might be um they might be somebody that that sat with a customer and opened an account for them and you know they they can they can see the the real life difference that that's making for for an individual so i think you know really making sure that you get a good understanding of, of what it is you're trying to do and then and then people come on on board with you because they understand from a real life real life situations as to as to what needs to happen and, and how how we need to change yeah sounds sounds that again we're going back to indeed asking the right questions and making sure that you explore all options to get to the right answers and you just do the best you can isn't it yeah <laughs> I'll go back to Peter with a fun question this time. Oh, I good. Promise. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, I must admit, Peter, I still remember when I went to see Titanic together with a few friends and, and my um, teacher of history at the time, and it was lots of crying, lots of crying. Um, but joking aside, uh, well, it's actually joking, it was a pretty tough story, but did your um, involvement in the music of that contribute to my crying <laughs> in a way? I mean, I mean, was it was it such a main part that um, it meant for the atmosphere to be like that? Or how, how did you get involved in that Titanic story in general? Yeah, well, I, first of all, I think that, you know, music is a huge part of how films and TV shows guide or even manipulate the audience's uh, response, isn't it? You know, Indeed. The, 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 old, the, old, the old idea of um, try watching the, the key moments of something like the Silence of the Lambs or, or something whilst mm. listening to some Tom and Jerry cartoon music. You know, it, it completely changes your experience compared to the music that the, the film composer had in, had in mind. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried when you've got, if you've got visions of me in a recording studio with Celine Dion or, or something, um, I'm, I'm afraid that the reality is a bit less glamorous. So um, I, was, I was in a choir and the choir was hired by a, um, an American production company to record a library of every single possible choral sound you can imagine. So we, we spent four days recording every note, chord, vocal sound you can imagine, every permutation you can imagine um, for film score composers to use when writing and recording soundtracks. Uh, and the product of that was used on Titanic as well as a number of other films in the late 90s. So do you I get think. royalties um, if it's used in any film? Me, me personally, no. Uh, the, the, the choir, yes. Yeah. Oh, well, lovely. That's good for the choir. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and I must admit, I have. Uh, I know that Peter. Um, just to conclude, perhaps the the conversation today. Um, uh, as, as I've been speaking to Peter, continuing with him on another slightly drier angle again uh, on notes. What, what are some common pitfalls that firms need to be really mindful uh, when uh, when actually implementing in practice the guidance? Yeah, so I think, well, first of all, Maxine's already mentioned, you know, um, applying it, particularly to, to a very large organisation, um, that, that the larger you are, the higher the expectations from the regulator and also the more difficult it is. So that, that's obviously a a huge thing. Um, I think one one pitfall actually is is the risk of not really getting the extent of what the SCA is after here. You know, we've we've talked about mm. um, how profound a shift they're looking for, uh, and the sort of clear and present danger to firms in a in a hard headed, you know, reputational and financial sense of incurring the regulator's displeasure um, if if they don't do it properly. Although it should be about more than that. It should be about you know good customer outcomes. Um, one other thing I'd mention, and we, firms ask us about this a fair bit, and I'll be trying to be careful because we're, we're into legal matters here, um, but I think um, firms are still trying to find the right way to handle data on customer vulnerability where it meets the standard of special category data uh, in, uh, in GDPR. And look, this, it's not easy. Um, firms want to be able to process data to understand and support customers, uh, not least because they've got these SCA expectations to meet. But of course, they also want to comply with um, with GDPR. So um, we probably haven't got time to go into legal details, and I'm certainly not in a position to give anyone any legal advice. Um, firms should should consult their own uh, legal advice if, if they if they're concerned about this. Um, but I think that GDPR requires firms to have a basis for processing special category data. Um, typically, firms uh, tend to have a basis under one of the articles, Article Six, um, such as the performance of a, of a contract. Um, but there's another, there's another article, Article 9, that requires an additional basis. Um, I think that generally speaking, firms can rely on explicit consent, um, and that's fine where the customer is capable and comfortable providing that consent, um, or it's possible for, for the controller to obtain consent. Um, if it's not possible, uh, then obviously that's, that's a much trickier area for firms. Um, as far as I understand it, Article 9 of GDPR does provide some further circumstances where a controller can process special category data. Um, consent is only one reason. There are, I think, a number of other reasons, including public interest. Um, the Data Protection Act um, allows controllers to access and process health data without consent, um, where consent can't be obtained um, or to ensure a person's economic well-being. So yeah, in practice, this is difficult. Uh, and as I say, I'm not a lawyer uh, and firms should get their own advice. 
Um, but actually, I was reminded earlier that one thing we've, we've come across, um, including at HSBC, uh, of firms doing is trying wherever possible not to actually record this special category data or try to characterize formally somebody's vulnerability specifically, but instead record the, the support that they need. Um, so not only does that um, help you avoid recording special category data, um, it also cements this kind of you know person before vulnerability idea that we, that we started with. And, and Peter, that's exactly the approach that, that we've taken. Um, so um, a, a good example of that might be that, um, that, that you record the need that somebody can't take a telephone call. Um, and that reason might be because um, they have a particular anxiety and don't don't really like talking to people over the phone. Yeah. It could be cognitive difficulties in in processing information hourly. It could be that um, somebody is is hard of hearing or deaf. There's lots of different reasons why somebody might say don't phone me. Yeah. But actually, the don't phone me bit is the bit that we can. That we yeah. can do something about we can make sure that we we don't call the customer if they've asked us not to um it, it's kind of in a way irrelevant the reason the reason why um and and like you say then you don't get stuck in this difficult world of can i record that can't i it doesn't it, focus focus on what we can do to to address your circumstance indeed Thank you, Maxime. I was just going to ask you that question, but thank you very much for picking this up. And, and indeed, thank you very much for this absolutely very insightful conversation. I certainly enjoyed very much speaking speaking to you, Maxine and, and Peter. It's um, it, it's it's clear that, uh, as we commented at the start of the discussion, that FCA has got some serious intentions to make sure that firms actually do change uh, what they do in terms of vulnerable consumers, as they call them. Um, and firms should really act promptly to ensure that they are uh, not falling short the regulators' expectations. Um, Peter, you talked you talked through the, the, the four different drivers, uh, which are really really important for firms to consider, as well as um, the four kind of lenses, if you like, um, that um, the, the FCA is expecting firms to apply across um, across this subject, um, and, and that they really need to think about understanding their their customers' needs and. They have to be really clear in their communications. They need to make sure that they've got the staff capability and, of course, that they've got the right tools in place to, to monitor ongoing how they're implementing that. And, and I think what, what we've all agreed today is that the heart, at the heart of all of that is, is perhaps what's aligned to FCA's expectation today is that we need to really go back to the drawing board and start asking the right questions from, from the very beginning and, and try and assess what we're really trying to achieve here and, and how we go about achieving it. And as Maxim quite rightly said, um, there may be some challenges with implementing this guidance, but in fact, it is actually an opportunity for firms to demonstrate how much they can do. Thank you very much once again, absolute pleasure. Um, and thank you very much for our listeners for tuning in today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Irina, really enjoyed it. And to leave our listeners with some more regulatory food for thought, we have recently updated our Financial Services Regulatory Handbook 2122, your one-stop shop for all key regulatory developments in the year ahead. You can also sign up to the Financial Services Regulatory Newsletter to receive weekly updates and invites into your inbox. And of course, to stay up to date with upcoming episodes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back with our next episode next month to talk about other exciting topics of the risk and regulatory world. Thank you again and goodbye.